In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. The Lord created the heavens and the earth, and on the earth He created a garden paradise, and He placed mankind, male and female, into the garden paradise to dwell with Him, to walk with Him. This was God's plan from the beginning, to dwell with mankind in paradise, to to be with them. But we separated ourselves from God because the garden is not just a place of geography, it's not just a longitude and latitude, it's a way of living and of thinking and of acting that starts with loving the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength and with loving our neighbor as ourself. When we do those things, we are in paradise with Christ. But because we have turned to selfishness and greed, to personal ambition, we've separated ourselves from God. We've separated ourselves from our neighbors. We've made ourselves at enmity with one another. We criticize and we cast aspersions and we point fingers. And when we do that, we we separate ourselves not only from God and from His paradise, but from one another. If it was up to us to solve this problem, we might condemn, we might punish, we might cast away, we might just kill each other. But God's solution is vastly different. God's solution comes in waves, like an invasion landing on the beach. The first wave of the first invasion was God calling Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to righteousness. Jacob and his twelve sons who become the nation of Israel are that first wave that come into the promised land. To do that for God to call them out, he meets them with his prophet Moses as the nation of Israel in Egypt, which is the land of graves. This is what they're famous for. They're famous for graves and for pagan gods. This is the land of death. And the Lord lifts his hand of providence, his hand of protection. And you remember these plagues, these ten plagues that come that are the results of sin. We all know the consequences of sin. We all know decay and death when we see it. And we know how our own sinfulness, our separation from God and and neighbor brings about these diverse sicknesses that we suffer from. The second wave is the prophets. And the prophets come and remind Israel. And finally, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God Himself comes as the last wave. He is the one who comes upon the beach and who restores perfect order. And He heals in His ministry, as we've heard these many weeks, all of these diverse plagues. Where the the plague was stopped for a moment in Egypt, the Lord miraculously cures over and over again, bringing healing and righteousness to His people. And the tenth plague, you remember, is the plague of death. And the Lord meets the plague of death and He teaches them how to keep the Passover, how to sacrifice the Lamb and to make the sign of the cross over their doors with its blood to signify that they are belonging to God and that they eat His flesh, the flesh of the Passover Lamb, to strengthen themselves for the journey ahead. And we're revealed that this one Passover Lamb that just keeps us fed for one night in this one blood over the doorpost that keeps us safe for one night is not enough for God. He would keep us safe and He would make us His own for eternity. And so He sacrifices Himself as the perfect Passover Lamb, one who has no blemish, no sin, no corruption. And because there is no priest to be found but God Himself, Christ is also the perfect priest and He prays for the whole world 
and the Garden of Gethsemane. We walk with Him as on Thursday night He prays for the sins of the whole world. He prays that we all would become one, that we all would fall under the banner of Christ. And then He offers Himself. Though Pilate could not do it, though the high priest could not do it, though the crowd could not do it, Christ offers Himself as the perfect sacrifice for us that His blood might wash over us, that we would remain sinless forever, and that He would give us His flesh to strengthen us for the road ahead. And so Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us, and we are called today to keep that feast. And as He rests in the tomb, we wait and watch upon the morning hour when we celebrate His resurrection from the grave. But before we talk a little bit more about resurrection, I want to talk about some of the, the historic criticisms of resurrection, some of the problems that people have had with the resurrection story. Progressives for many years have said that uh, the, the teaching of the resurrection was done by simple ancient people who were superstitious and naive about the ways of the world, right? This is what progressives want to do, right, is to say that we're moving into a bright new enlightened future that's away from the darkness and the superstition of the past. And so they hear a resurrection story and they think that these are foolish ancient people that don't know any better. Like the ancients didn't know that death was what it was, that it was permanent. They knew death in some ways better than we do. As if there were stories of resurrection all over the ancient world. And anybody that's read ancient literature knows that this is simply not the case. There are some groups that believed in some kind of an afterlife. The Egyptians thought you had to pack lunch and prepare your furniture for it. Some of the ancient mystery cults in Rome, they thought of some strange kind of an afterlife that was all about destiny, that you couldn't erase, that you couldn't change, that you were caught up in this destined life and that there was no way to separate yourself, especially from ethnicity. They tied it to ethnicity. They tied it to nation. They tied it to culture. There was no place where people said, oh yeah, resurrection, we know that. We see somebody resurrected all the time. There was no place where the early Christians went and somebody said, oh sure, resurrection from the dead, no problem, I believe that. <laughs> Everywhere it was preached, it was thought of as being an incredible thing to teach. The Jews thought that it was sacrilege and the Greeks thought that it was foolishness. The apostles themselves were not ready for it, even though Christ had told them about it over and over again. When Mary Magdalene goes to the emperor Tiberius, he says, what madness do you teach? The second is a little bit more recent, but I think gained a lot of traction, and that is that somehow there was a conspiracy but we all know that there's no honor among thieves and that those kinds of conspiracies don't work. Or that there was some kind of a group trauma experience by the apostles and those who followed Jesus. As if this was the first time there was any kind of revolution, as if this was the first time there was any kind of uprising. We know of a grand revolution that takes place by Judah Maccabee about 180 years before Jesus. When Judah dies, his people disperse. These were people who had raised arms, who had fought side by side. They were much more organized and disciplined than these 12 apostles that seemed to be running to and fro with absolutely no idea what's going on. This was a grand army of Israel that had risen up. And they dispersed when Judah died. A hundred or so years after Jesus, another revolution, Bar Kokhba, was thought to be a Messiah. And when he died, the Romans raised the city of Jerusalem. And there was no talk about Bar Kokhba coming back from the dead. 
his people dispersed, like they always do after an uprising or a revolution. There's only one explanation for the fact that hundreds and thousands of people proclaimed the risen Lord, for the fact that we've never seen an ancient person with a more detailed biographical narrative written by four independent sources who were eyewitnesses to this miracle. We've never seen anything like it before or since. More than that, in every generation, Christ has appeared to people in visions and dreams. He has made himself real through his body and his blood. He has appeared to us over and over again through miracles. He is appearing to us today. He is speaking to us. He is dwelling with us today. There is no other explanation for the resurrection but that Christ has risen from the dead. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? What's our response going to be? The greatest example that I know of is Mary Magdalene and the women, these myrrh-bearing women, who show the incredible kind of, of courage and faithfulness, loyalty to Christ, who rise early in the morning because of their deep and compassionate love for him. There is no other compelling way than to follow Christ through that kind of love and devotion that the myrrh-bearing women show. Though the disciples were scattered, though they were afraid, though people had wandered away and they had, had, had condemned him and forgotten him, the myrrh-bearing women are there before the rooster crows, before the sun has come up, and they are there to compassionately with love care for the risen Lord. And when Mary Magdalene sees him and doesn't recognize him, she's not all wrong in saying that he is the gardener because he is the eternal gardener. He is the one who is restoring us to the garden of paradise. He is the one who is trimming our branches. He is the one who is digging around our wells. He is the one that is feeding and fertilizing and watering us with his Holy Spirit to make us fruitful, that we may bear fruit that is worthy of the righteousness of God. St. Peter and St. Paul and Colossians tells us that if we are dead with Christ, if we're dead with Christ, then we will seek Him. See, that's what happens to the nation of Israel. They die in the Red Sea. They die and they rise to the newness of life. They become a new people. They're not the slaves who they were before. They're not condemned to death. They're rising to new life. We have died in the waters of baptism. We've died to our old selves. We've died to the, our old ways of living. We've died to the ways of the world. We no longer look for the ways of death. We no longer think about the, the, the dirtiness and corruption of the world. We turn to and seek Christ in all things. Bishop John David used to say, you can't stop thinking about bananas. Stop thinking about bananas. Don't think about bananas anymore. This is what happens when we try to stop sinning. Stop sinning, stop sinning. Our focus is upon righteousness. Our focus is upon Christ. Our focus is upon the risen Lord. As he says in Colossians we are to seek the things that are above where Christ is. We are to set our minds on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. Because where Christ is, our life appears. When we keep our eyes on Christ, we keep our eyes on the resurrection and on eternal life. When we love God and we love our neighbor, we have the courage of the myrrh-bearing women to serve one another with sacrificial love. The battle is won. 
death is defeated. Christ is risen from the grave. Alleluia. Christ is risen. Yes. Yes.